from the bull of our Holy Father, St. Benedict, chapter the seventh, De Humilitate, continued. <coughs> the fifth degree of humility is not to hide from one's abbot any of the evil thoughts that beset one's heart, or the sins committed in secret, but humbly to confess them, concerning which the Scripture exhorteth us, saying, Make known thy way unto the Lord, and hope in him. And again, Confess to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. So also the prophet saith, I have made known to thee mine offence, and mine iniquities I have not hidden. I will confess against myself my iniquities to the Lord, and thou hast forgiven the wickedness of my heart. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. I have yet to meet the monk who has never been assailed by thoughts that push him into restlessness, impurity, vindictiveness, anger, harshness, pride, ambition, covetousness, lust, rebellion, murmuring, and even hatred. There are men who in the world thought themselves reasonably virtuous, and on their way to holiness. After a season in the cloister, however, they begin to see cracks in the edifice of their virtue. And sometimes panic ensues. I'm not the man I thought I was. Since entering the monastery, I've become worse, not better. Here I am, struggling with things that never troubled me in the world. What am I to do? Such experiences are not unusual. The monastery, like the Egyptian desert of old, is a place of spiritual combat. One does not enter the cloister for a life of pious quietude. Put you on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the deceits of the devil, for our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the world of this darkness, against the spirits of wickedness in high places. Our Benedictine peace, the famed Pax Benedictina, is hedged about by thorns. It is not acquired cheaply. It is a thing more costly than anything the world can offer. Abalonjinus said, Give your blood and receive the Spirit. By this he meant that without being wounded and bloodied in spiritual combat, one cannot claim possession of the fruits of the Holy Ghost. But the fruit of the Spirit is charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, goodness, longanimity, mildness, faith, 
modesty, continency, chastity. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified their flesh with the vices and concupiscences. The disclosure of one's thoughts to the spiritual father is an indispensable part of the monastic strategy for spiritual combat. One begins to lose the battle as soon as one hides from his abbot the evil thoughts that beset one's heart and the sins committed in secret, as St. Benedict says. Hidden thoughts, temptations, struggles, resentments, and fears tend to swell and to increase in malignancy in proportion to one's unwillingness to disclose them. No sooner are such thoughts and hidden sins disclosed to the spiritual father than the swelling goes out of them, and the poison they contain begins to drain out of the soul. St. Ambrose writes, A fever which is most difficult to break gives hope of receding when it is brought to the surface. In much the same way, <coughs> as long as it is hidden, the sickness of sin grows constantly more serious, but if made known in confession, disappears. St. Fructuosus of Braga says that the monk ought always to refer all his acts and occasions of sin, thoughts, revelations, illusions, and negligences to the Father. It is a sure sign of pride when a monk keeps his troubling thoughts and temptations to himself. Not only does such a monk run the risk of becoming completely poisoned by his thoughts, he also sinks deeper and deeper into the quicksand of pride. Certain men, marked by their upbringing or by the culture in which they were reared, are loath to open up to another. They prefer to trudge along in solitary misery, sharing nothing, revealing nothing, not wanting to risk opening up to another. It is remarkable that the same man loses inhibition after downing a few pints. Then they begin, and sometimes at great length, and with tears, to reveal the thoughts of the heart to whomever happens to be near at hand. People will also reveal their innermost secrets, feelings, fantasies on Facebook, in so-called chat rooms, and in other social media. Is this not a manifestation of the need to confide in another, to bear one's soul? None of these things can offer lasting healing, nor are they channels of divine grace. Quite the opposite. The same can be said with all due respect to um, medicine and to the social sciences. 
and to the advances made in psychology and in psychiatry, someone will uh, spend great sums of money to go and recount the thoughts of his heart to an impartial listener. And at the end of the hour, the impartial listener says, your time is up, see you next week. And of course, the invoice is uh, sent through the post. And of course, the, the advantage of such therapy is that it allows one to put one's finger on, in, in the best, in the best in instances, it allows one to put one's finger on the uh, trouble, to name it, to identify it. Well, yes, it is this thing, perhaps this thing that happened in my childhood that has had this consequence and this consequence and that has so conditioned me that I behave in this way. That's extremely useful, but it cures nothing. It cures nothing. One has the relief of being able to identify where it hurts. But rarely does it cure the hurt. For this, there must be grace. And this is why the best Catholic therapists and Catholic uh, psychiatrists work with grace. The humble therapist will say, I have gone as far as I can go with you on this point. And now uh, divine grace must do its work. Um, uh, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, who is very open to all of the therapeutic sciences, was nonetheless uh, critical of um, the trend in his day, already in the 1950s, of putting all one's hope in uh, some kind of uh, uh, therapy, or um, putting all one's hope in, in psychiatry. That was all the, the rage, of course, in the 1950s. Everyone who was anyone had an analyst. You know, it was, it was almost trendy. You know, it's the kind of thing people used to talk about at cocktail parties in the 1950s. Uh, my therapist said, my analyst said, you know, it was a very trendy thing in some uh, uh, circles. Huh? And Archbishop Sheen, who knew those circles very well, especially in New York, uh, said, um, well, this is helpful to a point. But only Christ, the Divine Physician, can step into that time and place where the hurt occurred. Et virtus ex illo exibat et sanabat omnes. And divine power went out of him to heal them all. So, uh, when one comes to the abbot with one's thoughts, the abbot listens. The abbot can help the brother identify uh, what is triggering the thoughts. But the abbot then 
has in some way to be like St. John the Baptist and send the brother to the Lamb, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When an abbot tries to keep a brother entirely for himself, I will sort him out. I am the uh, answer to all his uh, inner sufferings, to his doubts, to his turmoil. Uh, uh, then the abbot himself is deluded. The abbot always refers to Christ. When an abbot sends a brother to the Blessed Sacrament, he's doing what he should do. When an abbot sends a brother to the feet of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mediatrix of all graces, he's doing what he should do. The abbot's office is, is a kind of relay station. One goes there to bear one's soul, to confess one's thoughts, to acknowledge one's sins, but the abbot must, like John the Baptist, send the brother to the Lamb. One of the abbot's principal tasks is to listen to the temptations, struggles, falls, and even spectacular defeats of his sons. If a brother is discouraged, the abbot must comfort him. If he is despondent, the abbot must incite him to hope. If he is despairing, the abbot must show him the inexhaustible mercy of God. If infected with acedia, a brother is listless, restless, the abbot raises him to his feet and helps him take the first small steps towards the full recovery of what St. Benedict calls the good zeal which monks ought to have. Sometimes it is enough for the abbot to pray with the brother and to send him on his way with a blessing. At other times, uh, the abbot may have to say to the brother, kneel down here now, and together we will pray a decade of the rosary and then go before the Blessed Sacrament and spend 15 minutes there and wait for the light that surely, surely will come. And to me, this is the most efficacious remedy when a brother comes to me really, really troubled. Uh, I'll say, kneel down and we'll say a decade of the rosary together and then go and spend 15 minutes before the Blessed Sacrament. Shall I call it a miracle cure? <laughs> I don't know, but I've always found it effective in my own life. To go to the abbot, to come clean, to acknowledge everything, to seek the intercession of our Blessed Lady, and then to go to the Lamb. Three steps. I've always found that wonderfully efficacious. The wisdom of St. Benedict shines forth most clearly in this chapter or rather in this fifth step of humility, when quoting the psalm, he says, Make known thy way unto the Lord, and hope in him. At the center of the fifth degree of humility is an invitation to hope. My children, 
Behold the generations of men, and know ye that no one hoped in the Lord, and hath been confounded. And this, of course, must be related to what we sing uh, standing uh, before the altar on the day of our profession. Take thou me to thyself, O Lord, according to thy word, and I shall live. Let me not be confounded in my hope. Um, related to this is the little invocation to Jesus, King of Love, that has a well-deserved reputation uh, for uh, working miracles of grace. O Jesus, King of Love, I put my trust in thy merciful goodness. I've told you before that um, when I was a newly ordained priest um, and my abbot sent me straight away to the confessional every night after Compline to hear the confessions of the guests of whom there would be 60 or 65 at a time in the Abbey Guest House. I started giving as a penance in certain cases uh, the invocation to Jesus King of Love and I would invite the penitent to say it on the rosary beads, uh, to take a decade. O Jesus, King of Love, I put my trust in thy merciful goodness. And the same penitents began coming back to me saying, I don't know what it is about that little invocation, but my life has completely changed. I was wrestling with such and such a vice, or I was in the grip of uh, a certain kind of sin, or I couldn't get over uh, a hurt suffered in my childhood. And since I've begun praying with a little invocation, great healing and peace has come into my soul. Uh, so I continue to uh, recommend uh, the little invocation that, as you know, was uh, given by our Lord to Yvonne Aimé um, even before she entered uh, the monastery of Malitroit. She was a young uh, woman uh, still living in the world when our Lord gave her that little prayer and uh, promised her that whosoever would pray that prayer morning and evening would soon experience uh, the effects of his merciful goodness. So simple as it is, it's disarmingly simple. I continue to recommend it. Um, remembering, of course, that tomorrow is the anniversary of the death of Mother Yvonne Aimé. Um, she, she was 50, was she, when she died? She was born in 1901 and died in 1951. So a relatively young woman, um, worn out already at that age by her service of Jesus, King of Love. So tomorrow is the anniversary of her death. 